Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. All right, we're coming to the end of resurrection as portrayed in chapter 15 as Paul's talking about it. So I want to do the last verse in this concluding verse. It may be a kind, seem to be a kind of non sequitur. How does this teaching on resurrection, you know, apply to being steadfast, abounding in the work of the Lord? And in this final verse is the summation, I believe, of the more abundant life. And that's my title, Abundant Life. This was Jesus' promise that I came to give you life and life more abundantly. And I believe that Paul then is describing how this abundant life is made available to us in the hope of the resurrection. So let's uh, look at verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren... Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. So throughout this discourse on resurrection, a a thing that I've not drawn out but is clearly interwoven is suffering. Clearly Paul's point in the conclusion that getting resurrection hope You know, remaining steadfast. It's a a means of realizing your work is not in vain. Uh, Your life is not for nothing. You can abound in the work of the Lord, he says. You can remain steadfast, immovable, through this understanding of the resurrection. And as Paul has described his own suffering and endurance in verse 30, Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in which I have in Christ Jesus, I die daily. If from human motives, verse 32, I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what did it profit me? Even where he's not specifically describing suffering, we recognize that there is deep pathos or suffering, death, is swallowed up in victory. That is, there's an overcoming of the suffering of death. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? We did the talk about that the sting of death, the suffering, the condemnation of death is sin. And the sting of death then is undone. The power of sin and the law is undone through the victory of Christ Jesus. And so Paul is describing throughout chapter 15 a life of engaged suffering on behalf of others. This victory only makes sense, I believe, if it is in the realm where death reigns. That is, that in this present tense understanding, in a continuum of embodied life, victory is attained. So that is that Victory is not departure, you know, going up to heaven. It's not entry into a purely spiritual realm. But it's a claiming of victory within creation, within the body, within the human psyche, within human communities and relationships. We can claim victory. We can begin to live out this resurrection life. Resurrection enables us to stand fast 
to stand fast in creation. The resurrection of the body holds creation and redemption together. That is, you know, we went through and talked about the continuity of flesh, of birds, of fish, orders of creation, the planets, the stars, the two Adams. The first Adam is fulfilled then, completed through the second Adam. And so the promise of resurrection of the body makes Christian hope concrete and confirms God's love for the created order. It's good, he pronounces in Genesis, and he never changes his mind. Creation is being redeemed in Christ. The first Adam was good. The creation is declared good. It is not being disposed of. It's being reconstituted. I came, Jesus says, that they may have life and have it more abundantly. This is a quote. George MacDonald was a kind of a preacher and novelist back in the previous century and something of a genius. But let me read it. This is a quote describing this resurrection life. In a word, he came to supply all our lack from the root outward. For what is it we need but more life? What does the infant need but more life? What does the bosom of his mother give him but life in abundance? What does the old man need whose limbs are weak and whose pulse is low, but more of the life which seems to be ebbing from him? Weary with feebleness, he calls upon death, but in reality it is life he wants. It is but the encroaching death in him that desires death. He longs for rest, but death cannot rest. Death would be as much an end to rest as to weariness. Even weakness cannot rest. It takes strength as well as weariness to rest. The difference between what Paul is describing, and I think escapism, maybe just neurosis, just unendurable suffering, is that Paul is directly confronting the work of death as George MacDonald is describing it. Picturing resurrection as defeating this work in a complete victory. This means that our life need not be a work of death, a suffering unto death, a dealing in death, which is, I think, the attempt to make the mortal immortal or the perishable imperishable on our own terms. The death of loneliness, the death of friendlessness, the death of lovelessness, the death of shame. The answer to death is not more of the same, more escape, more fantasy, more self, more of that which we imagine is life but is not, more money, more power, more importance, more fame. All is a craving for more life and is just a taking up of death, a groaning and travail in which the perishable would put on its own imperishableness. The mortal would make itself immortal, and it is a pursuit of life that kills. So we would, you know, as we described it, enjoy our symptoms, our depression, our neurosis, our greed, our lusts. We would imagine this is life, and we are undone. We're not steadfast. More life then, the realization of life, 
That's the unconscious prayer of all creation as Paul describes it in Romans 8. Groaning and travailing for the redemption of its Lord. The child who is not yet a child will be brought up then into the full adoption. Maybe adoption is too weak. We are children who do not fully realize that we are the children of God. And now we're realizing it. And we realize this, we grow up into life through a realization of resurrection life. In a culture that evades telling the truth about death, this teaching of the resurrection enables us to expose the lie, face the reality, stand steadfast in the hope of resurrection. And so if death, you know, is just passage into spiritual bliss, death must be good, right? Death is our friend. Death is the doorway into eternal life, escapism. I believe this short circuits reality. It is a lie. And the taking up of death into life, a kind of escapism, is the human sickness, the disease that robs us of abundant life. Paul is describing the culminating point of the life principle. Here there is no weariness, no sorrow, no decay. George MacDonald again. Low-sunk life imagines itself weary of life. But it is death, not life, it is weary of. Why does the poor, worn-out suicide seek death? Is it not in reality to escape from death? From the death of homelessness and hunger and cold, the death of failure, disappointment, and distraction, the death of the exhaustion of passion, the death of madness, of a household he cannot rule, the death of crime and fear of discovery. He seeks the darkness because it seems a refuge from the death which possesses him. He is a creature possessed by death. What he calls his life is but a dream full of horrible phantasms. The fundamental truth and ultimate reality of our existence is that Christ has been raised. This changes up our understanding, our capacity for understanding reality. Resurrection life is our salvation because death has been the ruling principle. And this then has been exposed as a lie in the resurrection of Christ. The doctrine of resurrection of the dead, it affirms the moral significance of our life in the body, in creation. Paul says it will give rise to an abounding in the work of the Lord. And of course, this is the Corinthians' problem. They deprecated the body and they cut the nerve of moral action. When we live within the story told by Paul, you know, a, con a story whose conclusion is in the triumph, the victory of resurrection of our mortal bodies, well, that means we'll use these bodies in ways that are appropriate to their goal, to their end, to be conformed to Christ. And that's what Paul means. You know, he's already said this in chapter 6. The body is not meant for fornication, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will raise us by his power. Paul has taught us we cannot, you know, he says two things. We cannot attach ultimate 
importance to the body. Our identity is not in marriage. It's not in our ethnic status, our social status. But he's also depicted the body as a temple of the Lord. And spiritual worship is embodied. So either too much or too little emphasis on the body will drain life of meaning. This is Soren Kierkegaard's picture of the vulgar aesthete, the hedonist, who centers his life around the pursuit of pleasure. And frequent exposure to this type of pleasure just leads to satiation, boredom, meaninglessness. I do not feel like doing anything. I don't feel like writing. The motion is too powerful. I don't feel like walking. It is too tiring. I don't feel like lying down, for either I would have to stay down, and I don't feel like doing that, or I would have to get up again, and I don't feel like that either. Summa summarum, I don't feel like doing anything. Hedonist, materialist, lose the material world, ironically. But I believe to embrace creation theologically as God's good gift to us, we can see the material world as the sharing in and reflecting the glory and goodness of God. Soren Kierkegaard, he goes through the stages of life. He describes one who comes to this understanding. He says, when you see this man, you may not recognize him. He just looks like another tax collector. Outwardly, it would be impossible to distinguish him from the rest of the crowd. Yet this one who has the resurrection hope inwardly, this man has made at every moment, is making the movement of infinity, resting his self in the transcendent. He has attained the ideal relation between the infinite and the finite, the simultaneous maintenance of an absolute relationship to the absolute and a relative relationship to the relative. Living in this world, but not of the world, we might say, and thus not dependent on it, he can enjoy finite things and relationships without suffocating them with a desperate anxiety. And so the finite tastes just as good to him as one who never knew anything higher, because his remaining infinitude would have no trace of a timorous, anxious routine and yet he has this security that makes him delight in it as finitude were the surest thing of all. He resigned everything infinitely. Remember Paul's picture, as if not. We receive the things of this world. They do not bear and cannot bear too much meaning, but it's through the things of this world that God comes to us. He is continually making Kierkegaard says, the movement of infinity. But he, he does it with such precision and assurance that he continually gets finitude out of it. The world is returned unto him, and yet, in a way, he's departed from one world to gain this world. So resurrection enables us to stand fast in the world against the twisted morality of culture. Christ, you know, this is the depiction in 1 Corinthians 15, that the principalities and powers are being undone, being destroyed, but not every ruler and authority and power has been yet put under Christ's feet. The logic of the resurrection, like the logic of the cross, it's profoundly subversive. 
as the powers depend upon death as an absolute and dealing in death. I believe the cultures of this world are all cultures of death. They are all death machines which would silence life through death. You know, where the aesthete or the hedonist would find pleasure in life, the ethicist, this is the second stage in Kierkegaard's stages in life's way, he would find it in ethics. Having attained social status, wealth, power, the ideal ethicist is someone who has attained worldly success and veneration. Think of Paul as a successful Pharisee, excelling beyond his peers. Morality, as culture would teach it to us, may be immorality, right? Adolf Eichmann was very moral according to the standards of the Third Reich, in which he lived the life of a perfect bureaucrat, timing the, the chain tables so that they would deliver the Jews to the death camps. Harry Truman was a good man, right? According to the culture of Missouri, and yet killed hundreds of thousands of people needlessly. The individual in the ethical sphere is in danger of situating himself in a sick society and a situation that really is undoing his humanity. That succeeding according to the standards of this world may make a demon and a devil out of you. Yet people perish and worldly things vanish and people imagine this is the way to establish yourself. And so all Christian proclamation must be grounded in the resurrection. The faith stands or falls. Paul insists on this. If you do not believe in the bodily resurrection, denying resurrection, this, he says, is as good as nihilism. It will give rise to an interior faith. You know, this is the Corinthians problem. They're focused on experience, on a pietistic religion. They're only interested in souls going to heaven. They're the original liberals who imagine that, oh, they just need to display a kind of inward dependence and interior understanding. It's the beginnings of New Age religion, cultivating only personal spirituality. This isolated religion is as far from anything. Paul says, this is not Christianity. Listen to Paul, you know, the deep pathos, the profound emotion. This is Paul addressing the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians. Make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. I do not speak to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. For even when we came into Macedonia and our flesh had no rest, we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within, but God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort which he has comforted in you. As he reported to us, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. The depth of emotion and pathos and connectedness to other people, I don't believe it can be equaled. 
Make room for us. You are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort because of you. I am overflowing with joy in our affliction because of you, Paul says. There is life. Death is a privation of life. It's a death of connectedness. It's a failure to be. In Christ's death, death has been swallowed up in victory. What this means in practical terms is that the world is given back to us. Other people are given back to us. Love is given back to us. We can know the unstoppable power of life and therefore of love and peace. Friendship, community, love speak of doing life together. Besides our comfort, Paul says, we rejoiced even much more for the joy of Titus. Paul experiences the highs and lows of his life through his connectedness to others. Because his spirit has been refreshed by you all, Paul says, my spirit has been refreshed. His affection abounds all the more towards you as he remembers the obedience of you all. Refreshed life, rejoicing life, joy, comfort, investment in friendship. This is the complete opposite of departure, absence, escapism. The resurrection binds us to creation. It binds us to history. It binds us to the history of Israel. History is not in vain. It happened according as, you know, Jesus says, accordance with the scripture is resurrection. And so our telling of the resurrection story will only make sense in relation to God's promise to Israel and the history of God's dealing with this particular people. The one whom God raised from the dead was in obedience to Israel's God. His resurrection confirms God's faithfulness to his promise to Abraham. This is important because it is in this story, I believe, that death is depicted as a result of sin, and sin is an orientation to the law. It's the Jew that understands resurrection means forgiveness. That doesn't go together for most people. If you're a good Platonist, resurrection is condemnation. But what the history of Israel teaches us is that in resurrection, final days have begun. Forgiveness has been instituted. Life is available. And Paul references Isaiah 25 up in verse 54, which is the promise to Israel. Isaiah 25. On this mountain, he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, the covering of death, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces and will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. The resurrection connects us to creation. It exposes the lie of death. It connects us to embodiment. It frees us from the valuation and ethical systems of our cultures that surround us. It connects us to the deep love of others and the comfort of that love. It connects us to history, to salvation history. We are a part of his story, history.
how will you do resurrection this week? Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.